A brief look at the things that are popular in our culture, movies, songs, TV shows, fashion, reveals that we are obsessed with sex. But our culture's understanding of sex is upside down from what the Bible teaches. At the ERLC's national conference, Philip Bethencourt addresses God's design for sex, love, and marriage. We hope you find this message helpful. If you have your Bibles, let's grab them. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. And as you're turning there, I want to know in the crowd, are there any college football fans out there? Okay, me too. I enjoy the Texas A&M Aggies. And I remember the first time my parents ever took me to a game. I remember uh, climbing in the back seat. I was excited. I was young. It felt a little awkward and unnatural going there. I didn't know what to expect But for a moment, as we won that game, I was excited for that first time, but I wasn't prepared for the disappointment that would follow, because there were a lot of unmet expectations, there were a lot of ups, there were a lot of downs along the way. There were some seasons I couldn't wait for the next chance to watch a game, and there were others where I just wanted to stay away from it because it was such a disappointment for me. The reality is that's true not just with college football, but if we're being honest today, That's the way that many of us feel when it comes to sexuality. We have experienced trauma and difficulty when it comes to sex, but also great joy. And there's a reason for that. It's because sexuality reflects the cross-shaped nature of the gospel. Think about what happens in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is both humiliation and exaltation. There is both deep sorrow and suffering and exuberant joy. And it's no wonder that in the bedroom, we often feel our lowest moments of shame and our greatest moments of delight. And Paul has a word for us today. As we look through 1 Corinthians 7, he is writing to this church in Corinth, this epicenter of commerce, this centerpiece of sexuality with a temple to Aphrodite and his words to us from then speak to this important topic. Now, it's always a little bit uncomfortable to talk about sex. It's a complex issue. It probably feels a little bit awkward for you to be listening to this, but hey, my parents are here listening to me. So it feels a lot more awkward for me than it could possibly feel for you. But what we're gonna notice is that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives us three big ideas about the way that the gospel reshapes our view of sex. So look with me in verse one. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So the first big idea here is that for Paul, and he's showing us the way that the gospel reveals that sex is a priority. You see what he's doing there. He's responding to the Corinthian church. He says in verse one, concerning the matters about which you wrote. He's showing us that sex is a priority because of questions in the community. Now, by show of hands, how many of you have ever dropped your phone and cracked your screen? Okay, a lot of you have. I've done that too. Oftentimes when that happens, you can still see the image that's displayed, but that display is fractured. It's shattered. It's not capable of displaying the image it was designed to reflect in the way that it did before that fall. And that's so true with sexuality for us. 
There, in our culture, sex means everything, and at the same time, sex means nothing. And that was a similar disposition in first century Corinth, where they had a temple to the goddess of love, and there was temple prostitution going on there. The same mantra that's true now was true back then. If it feels good, do it. You know, the old preacher story goes that uh, they were having children's church at their, at, at their worship service, and he invited the kids down to the front. It was near Easter. He wanted to talk about the resurrection, and so he asked the group of kids, hey, what, what do you know about the resurrection? And little Johnny waved his, raised his hand in the back, and he said, I learned something about the resurrection on TV. He said, well, what is it? He said, well, I learned that if you have a resurrection for longer than four hours, you should call your doctor immediately. Sexuality is everywhere in our culture. It was true in that time, and it is true today. And that is one of the key reasons it's a priority. But it's not just a priority because of what's around us. It's also a priority because of what's within us. Paul is writing to the Corinthians prior to this in 1 Corinthians 5, and he's addressing sexual immorality that is happening in the church. He is acknowledging that there is sin from within that must be addressed. One of the reasons we cannot hold back from talking about God's design for sex is because the church is full of broken people. And Satan is relentless in his desire to tear us down in sexual sin. And what we need to recognize this morning is that what we do with our bodies reveals what we believe about the gospel. And it's so important for you that are parents to recognize that if, if sexuality is a priority for us in the home, that means we're going to be consistent and, and persistent in the conversations we have about the birds and the bees. I'm raising four boys at home with my wife, and so we're already two rounds into the birds and the bees conversation. And I think it's helpful to think about training your kids about sexuality in a very similar way to the way you might train a kid to use a firearm. And so part of what you're doing with the firearm is raising awareness about it breeding familiarity, helping them to understand the proper use of it. And you can't expect to show a child how to use a gun at age 10 or age 12 and assume that that one conversation is gonna solve it for the rest of their life. There's gotta be an ongoing intentionality that's there. Sex is a priority because of the questions in our community, but you'll also see back in verse two another reason why sex is such a priority. Do you see it there? It says uh, that you should pursue uh, sexual intimacy in marriage because of the temptation to sexual immorality. So the other reason that sex is a priority is because of temptation that comes from the devil. Sexual desire is like a raging fire. When a fire is raging in your fireplace on a cold winter night, and you can warm that, your kids can make s'mores out of it, it's an incredible thing. When you fire up the grill to cook a bone-in ribeye, or you're smoking God's version of barbecue, which is brisket, in those moments, that raging fire is used for good purposes. But as soon as it moves outside of its designed use, it becomes extremely dangerous. 
A wildfire is of a similar kind to a fire in your fireplace, but because it is not being used in the proper outlet, it can be dangerous. And so what we need to recognize is sexual desire is not evil, but there is risk, there is danger. But what should give us hope in the midst of that danger is that we have a savior that has gone before us. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet without sin. That includes sexual temptation. One of the reasons that Satan relentlessly tempts us sexually is because Satan hates sex. And he hates sex because he has the echoes of Genesis 3.15 ringing in his ears, knowing that the first promise in the Bible was that God would raise up a deliverer through the offspring of the woman that would come about by sexual intercourse, who would one day crush the head of that serpent. So the question we need to think about today is how do we make sex a priority? And when I went off to college at Texas A&M, I was not very capable of taking care of myself, especially in the cooking department. And so my mom knew I needed help, and so she got me a cookbook and it was called A Man, A Can, A Plan. And this wasn't just any cookbook because normally a cookbook gives you the recipes and the instructions. This thing took it a step further, a whole nother level. Because it didn't just give you the recipe and the instructions, it actually had pictures. And what you were intended to do is to take this with you to the grocery store. And when you had 85 choices of green beans, you would find the one that matched the picture in the cookbook and select that off the shelf. Isn't that brilliant, guys? Don't you wish you had that back in college? And I know many of us wish that we could have a similar guidebook when it comes to sex. But it's not that simple in thinking through how to make sex a priority in your home. But here's what I think the gospel is showing us today. Sexual intimacy within the context of marriage is another opportunity for us to find ways to intentionally love our neighbor as ourself. What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself in the bedroom? Let me frame that with two questions for you to reflect on. For the men in the room, why do you, myself included, why do you put more energy into ministry strategies and closing deals than pursuing your wife intimately. And for you ladies, why are you predisposed to say yes to the desires of your children more easily than to the desires of your husband? If you think through those questions, it may help to reshape the way that sex can become, again, a priority in your home. And Paul is writing here in verses one and two to show us the way that sex is a priority, but what you're gonna notice in verse three is a second big idea. If you look back at the text, Paul is going to demonstrate the way that the gospel shows us that sex is a gift. Do you see what he says? The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, we live in a culture that teaches that sex is a right, that you should be able to have what you want, when you want it, with whoever you want. But the Bible is giving us a different picture. Sex is not a right, it's a gift. And we see two aspects of the good gift of sex unfolding here in verse three. The first one you'll notice is the way that 
Paul is showing that sex is a gift from God for his glory. Now, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 is bringing back memories of what he had just said right before this. If you look back in chapter 6 in verses 19 and 20, he says, he reminds them, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. God has wired all of us for intimacy, but in different ways. So you have heard it said that when it comes to sex, men are like microwaves and women are like crockpots. But I'm here to tell you today that men are like Little Caesars and women are like Chipotle. See, because the, the, the analogy of microwaves and crockpots just doesn't work. For a guy, a microwave implies that it, it's currently off and it has to be intentionally turned on that there has to be some buttons pressed before it's activated. But that's just not the case. See, guys are much more like Little Caesars. There are some pizza places that do lots of things. You can get pizza, you can get pasta, you can get calzones. Little Caesars is all about pizza pizza. It's got one thing on the brain. And when you go there, you're gonna see in the back of any pizza shop, one of the most amazing inventions in modern history. It's a pizza oven with a conveyor belt. They make the pizza over on one side of, of the kitchen and then they bring it on there and whatever is placed on that conveyor belt, it immediately starts to go through it and it always ends in perfection at the completion of the process. It doesn't matter if it's pepperoni or meat lovers. It doesn't matter if it's a piece of trash that goes on there. Everything is going to be cooked, but here's the most important thing. The oven is always on. And there's a reason that, that Little Caesars, their tagline is hot and ready. See, that's the total encapsulation of a guy when it comes to sexuality. But see, women, women it gets confused when people think of them like crockpots. Because the, the idea of a crockpot implies that whatever's thrown in there is going to get cooked no matter what. We know that's not true. And we, it also suggests that all it's going to take is a little bit of time in order to heat things up until it's ready for use. See, I think Chipotle's a lot better fit. You, you wait in line, you walk up there, and they start making your burrito. It's handcrafted. You pick the things you want. You don't include the things you don't like. It's a painstaking process <laughs> that along the way needs to be done with extreme accuracy and care. And at the end of it, they wrap that thing up in that tinfoil for you to enjoy at the appropriate time. And let me tell you guys, there is no unwrapping the burrito if it's not made properly. And that's the picture of intimacy that we have when it comes to males and females. God has wired us for intimacy, but in different ways for his glory. And the question before us today is, do we believe that God knows what's best for our sexuality? Because if we don't, then we are not going to be able to glorify him. How can we dishonor the giver of the gift and expect that it will bring him glory. That's why Paul is saying, therefore glorify God in your body. Whatever situation you find yourself in, whether it's in marriage or singleness, the way you glorify God with your body is through holiness. That's what Paul is calling us to today. So he highlights that idea that sex is a gift for God's glory, but also look back in verse three, he shows us the way that sex is a gift from God for our pleasure and for procreation. You see what he says there? 
the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Our first child was born in an ice storm in Louisville, Kentucky. It was one of the worst storms in the history of the city. Uh, it knocked out power for a week. When we got discharged from the hospital, we went home to a house with no electricity. And an interesting thing happened. I was tracking the news after that, and about nine months after the ice storm, there was a front page article about a boon of babies being born across Louisville. And they showed the way that the timing happened to correspond with the timing of this week-long ice storm that knocked out everybody's power. And I still remember to this day that one of the people quoted in there about the causes of this boon and baby said, well, I guess that's what happens when there's nothing better to do. See, God has designed marriage for our pleasure and for our enjoyment so that he can raise up the next generation of offspring. But he didn't have to do it that way. He could have made a pathway toward procreation that bypassed pleasure. But he unites those two together, and Paul speaks here of giving conjugal rights to one another because he recognizes a danger. There's a danger to fall in one of two ends of the spectrum where some people see sex as a problem to be managed. Others see sex as a preoccupation to be indulged. Instead, what Paul is showing us is that sex is designed to be a gift to be enjoyed. And he speaks very specifically in verse 3 about how that gift is best enjoyed within the context of marriage. He shows us the way that it is through giving oneself over to your spouse through sacrificial service. And we live in a culture where when it comes to sex, the fixation is on selfish satisfaction. What can sex do for me? How, how can I join, enjoy? Get as much as you can while you can for as long as you can. But what Paul is showing us here is that when he's speaking of giving your conjugal rights away, he's saying that sex is more about what you can give than what you can get. And this would have been so countercultural in the moment he was speaking. The idea of a man laying down his rights to anyone would have been foreign to Corinthian listening ears. But that is the pathway that God is calling us to of sacrificial service in the cross-shaped marriage bed. Paul speaks here in verse three of the way that sex is a gift, but I want you to notice the way that this passage ends. In verses four and five, we see a third big idea about how the gospel reshapes our sexuality. Paul speaks of the way that sex is a weapon. So look there in verse four. He says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is speaking here in verses four and five of the way that sex is a weapon for both terrible purposes and incredible purposes all at the same time. 
Notice how it starts in verse four. He talks about authority, that there's a giving over of authority to another in the sexual act. And he's showing us the way that sex is often a weapon for those with powerful authority. In other words, the allure of powerful authority is that we mistakenly assume that we have authority over bodies other than our spouses. And that's the exact moment we're living in right now in this Me Too moment in our culture and in our churches. You see it in the culture. You see it in Hollywood. You see it in politics. You see it even in the church, even in our own denomination. Paul is warning us of the dangers of using sex as a weapon to, for the powerful to exert their authority over others. And here's the pattern that plays out. Those with authority use their power for unwanted sexual advances on others. And as that happens, oftentimes in companion with that, there are others who refuse to hold the powerful accountable because they're focused on their own self-protection rather than justice and protection for the vulnerable. Paul is calling us to a different way. And what we need to understand today when it comes to this issue of sexual assault and abuse and the way that the powerful can use sex as a weapon against others is that the root issue is not just about sexual purity. It's about the misuse of authority. It's not just about pleasure. It's about power. We need to recognize it. And that's why I am so thankful for what's been unfolding in the last few months in our denomination as we've appointed a sexual abuse study group. The ERLC is partnering with J.D. Greer to try to make concerted efforts to gain grounds in this. And I've had a front row seat to it. And there have been a lot of things that have encouraged me, but there's also been some things that have frustrated me immensely. I remember one conversation, I was with a group of 15 or 20 people getting their input on what we should do with this study group. And one older gentleman raised his hand, and you know what he said? He said, I don't understand why our denomination is just taking our cues from the culture rather than from the Bible. In most of our churches, the, the, the people that watch the children in our nurseries are relatives of those kids. We can trust them. And and the police already know how to handle this if if an incident comes up. What else do we need to do? And I thought in that moment, that's a better encapsulation than I could ever create of the crisis that the church is facing. We must pursue this issue with urgency. But here's the danger for me, and I wonder if some of you feel it, My instinct is to want to move straight to solutions before starting with sorrow. And I look out in this room, and I know these people watching on this live stream, there's a lot of hurt that many of you experience. I can see people in my mind's eye, ministry mentors, close friends, even family members that have faced this burden. And I know you want us to get it right, but I know that before we can get it right, we need to weep with those who weep. 
out of the sorrow, I am praying that the solutions will come. And our hope as we embark on this effort is that 10 years from now, we will look back at 2018 as a turning point for Southern Baptists when it comes to this issue. And what I'm saying to you today is it starts with the people in this room. When you go back to your ministry context, how are you going to make a difference in this important issue? See, Paul is speaking here of the way that sex is often a weapon for those in powerful authority, but look back at verse four. We see another dimension of the danger of this sexual weapon when he says that sex is often a weapon for those with private anonymity. Do you see what he says there? Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The allure of private anonymity is we mistakenly assume we have authority over our own body rather than what Paul is saying here, that that authority has been given to another and reserved within the context of marriage. And when you drill down to the root of the spiritual cancer of pornography, at the end of the day, Paul is showing us it's an issue of authority. Who has authority to direct and to satisfy the sexual desires in your own heart. Every Christmas, we have our kids select a gift that they're gonna give to one of their siblings and we'll take them to the store and they'll handpick what they think the other one might want. But you know what I've noticed? A lot of times they wanna pick something that they really want because they have the ability to influence in hopes that the sibling doesn't actually like it all that much and they can have it instead and play with it for the days to come. And instead of bestowing that gift on another, they are using that gift on themselves. I know there are men and women in this room gripped by the constant pull toward pornography. Don't keep giving that gift to yourself. That is not the way that God has designed it. And Satan will relentlessly pursue you and convince you that you can hide it from everybody else. Protect yourself under a cloud of anonymity. And all he's doing is cultivating your appetites to satisfy them with forbidden fruit. Porn tells us a story of shame masquerading as satisfaction, but the gospel tells us a story of joy that can only come through holiness. So there are several ways that sex can be used as a weapon in negative fashions. But as we close today, I want you to look back at verse five and see the way that Paul is showing us that sex can also be a weapon for those seeking spiritual victory. Do you see what he says? Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so I know every family is different when it comes to dessert after meals. Some of you treat it like a uh, standard pattern. You know, yeah, of course, after dinner, go pick out a dessert from the closet and you use that as a punishment mechanism to take that away when there are times of inappropriate behavior. I get that. For our family though, 
Uh, dessert is a privilege. It's not a guarantee. It's not expected. And it's an honor and an opportunity to enjoy it when we think the moment is right. What Paul is speaking of here when he talks about sexual intimacy in the context of marriage is that it should be a pattern and not a privilege. That it's an expectation that you should not deprive from one another rather than a privilege that is only bestowed on certain occasions. And he says, the reason is because sex is spiritual warfare. He points out the way that we all face temptation because as he says at the end of verse five, we struggle with a lack of self-control. What we need to recognize is that in the context of marriage, Satan is just like your favorite college football coach who every week is coming up with a customized game plan to defeat that week's competition. Satan is watching your habits, your patterns, your tendencies, pressing you in different areas so that he might cultivate desires that he will later bring to destruction. And Paul is saying there may be seasons where just like in fasting, we need to fast from sexual intimacy so that we might pursue spiritual intimacy with the Lord. But outside of those seasons, do not deprive one another so that we might enable each other to stand firm in the spiritual battle we face for sexual purity. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to lead a seminary study group over to Greece to go see some of the, uh, the, the areas of the Bible that are featured. And one of the places that we stopped was in Corinth, and I'll never forget it. So you're there, we're standing in the middle of the ancient marketplace. Right next to us is this majestic hillside, and you can see these ruins of some of the temples there at the top of these mountains. And our guide told us what was commonplace in Corinth. At a certain time every day, the temple prostitutes would emerge from the temple of Aphrodite. They would come down the mountainside into the city center to entice those who would come back to worship the goddess of love with them. And one of the ways this guide told us about that they would entice those to follow them back into this activity is they would be wearing sandals. And on those sandals would be inscribed the Greek word that would be translated today, follow me. And every step they took through the sandy ground of that city was inviting others to come and follow them into this path of temptation and sin. As we think of the way that sex is a priority, sex is a gift, and sex is a weapon, we need to recognize that a cross-shaped view of the bedroom shows us that we have two choices. Who will we follow? And Paul is calling us to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on this path to purity. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. For more information about this topic and other free resources, visit ERLC.com and join us next week when we hear about strengthening marriages and ministry.